Hi, everyone. Welcome to 10 Points Parsha Podcast. This is Rabbi Yisrael Isaacs. Parsha's Vaychi is the 12th Parsha in the book of Bereshis, the book of Genesis, and it is the conclusion of the four Parsha story. The last four Parshios, the last four Torah readings in the book of Bereshis are about the story of Yosef and his brothers, and this Parsha concludes that four-part series. Its main topic is the death of Yaakov, the death of Jacob, and what he does before he dies. The first verse of the Parsha starts right off talking about what's going to happen. And it says that Yaakov lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and the days of his life were 147 years. And what's unique about this Parsha, every other Parsha starts with a space between the last word of the previous Parsha and the first word of the new Parsha. This Parsha starts immediately after the last verse of the previous Parsha. Rashi explains that since this Parsha contains the story of the death of Yaakov, the fact that there's no space alludes to what happened after Yaakov died. After Yaakov died, the shibud, the subjugation, and the slavery started slowly at first, but it eventually got worse and worse, but it started with Yaakov's death. As as long as Yaakov was alive, they were completely free. But once he died, that freedom started to be reduced, and eventually it ended up in there being slaves. The fact that the space between this Parsha and the prior one is closed alludes to the emotional state and the intellectual state and the spiritual state that resulted from, from the beginning and the pain of the servitude, which is that their eyes and their hearts, their minds, their emotions were closed. The servitude began and it started to take a toll on the Jewish people. Rabbi Mordechai Druk, who was a Magid basically a professional sermonizer that lived in Yerushalayim. I believe he passed away 10 years ago in 2010. I was recently shown some of his comments and explanations of this Parsha and the previous Parsha by Rabbi J.J. Schechter. He has a lot of interesting and thought-provoking pieces, which I'm going to share with you today, some of them. But on this comment of Rashi, he quotes his father. And this approach addresses the same question of Rashi of why this Parsha has no space before it, but it goes in a slightly different direction. He says that the beginning of the servitude was really, in a sense, the beginning of the tsaros, the pain of gullus, of exile, of the Jewish people being what the rabbis describe as kivsa achas ben shivim ze'evim, one sheep among 70 wolves, meaning our precarious position that has always been with us from time immemorial as strangers in strange lands. How we've been subjected to evil decrees, forced conversions, pogroms, murders, etc. But nevertheless, the Jewish people always carries on and has always survived. This mystery of how that is, is closed. It's supernatural. It cannot be understood logically. Vaychi Yaakov the Parsha starts off saying, Yaakov lived. How does Yaakov live? Meaning, how does the Jewish people live? Yaakov symbolizes the entire Jewish people. That's a mystery. That's something that we can't logically understand. It's God protecting us. This mystery and miracle of the survival of the Jewish people is beautifully expressed in Mark Twain's 1898 essay in Harper's Magazine called Concerning the Jews. At the very end, his conclusion reads, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded 
to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? The first thing that happens in this Parsha is that Yaakov senses that his end is near, and he summons his son Yosef, and he tells him, Al-na sikbereni b'mitzrayim, do not bury me in Egypt. And he makes Yosef not only promise, but take a shavua, take an oath that he will not bury him in Egypt. He wants to be buried in his family burial plot in the Ma'aras HaMachpela, in the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. There are two additional points about this beginning section of the Parsha. One of them is, is that it points out that Yaakov lived from the time that he came down to Egypt to reunite with Yosef until the time that he was about to die. It was 17 years. If you think about it, 17 years has significance in another part of Yosef's life. He was 17 when he was sold by his brothers down to Egypt. So this is an interesting parallel. He spent the first 17 years of his life with his father Yaakov, and he spent the last 17 years of his life with his father Yaakov. Rev Salvechik says something very interesting. It's on page 351 of the Chumash Masora Sarav. He says that these 17 years were required on the front and the back end, so to speak, for Yaakov to educate Yosef. The first 17 years of Yosef's life were required to fashion Joseph's young personality and imbue it with the morality and piety of Abraham and Isaac. 17 years was the amount of time it took for his fundamental education and to pass down to Yosef the Masorah, the tradition that Yaakov had learned from his father and grandfather. But Jacob knew that now Yosef was a powerful leader and ruler in Egypt. And the longer a leader exercises authority, the tougher, more proud, and less sensitive he becomes. Yaakov was concerned that after his death, Yosef might fall prey to the temptations of his very significant power and imitate other rulers in their way of life. Therefore, it was necessary to invest another 17 years to fortify Yosef and review the Masorah, review the teachings and way of life of Avraham that represented Avraham's, Yitzchak's, and Yaakov's family and legacy. At the very end of this episode, when Yaakov asks Yosef to swear to him, and Yosef did so, it says, then Israel prostrated himself towards the head of the bed, meaning Yaakov bowed down to his son Yosef, who was a ruler of Egypt. Incidentally, this may be the fulfillment of Yosef's second dream, which portrayed the sun and the moon, aside from the other stars bowing down to Yosef's star. And the sun represented Yaakov. But why did Yaakov feel compelled to bow at this point. Rashi has two approaches. The first one is that Yaakov bowed in deference 
to Yosef's position of leadership. But he has another explanation, that when he says that he bowed down towards the head of the bed, the bed is a metaphor for Yaakov's offspring. And he wasn't bowing down to Yosef, he was bowing down to the Almighty in gratitude that none of his offspring were Rishayim, none of his offspring were wicked. Because even Yosef, who was a powerful ruler and was captured and living and living in an immoral society for so long, he maintained his righteousness. So he was expressing his gratitude that all of his children were righteous. But this approach that explains this bowing down as an expression of gratitude raises a difficult question. Why is Yaakov expressing this right now? He's been reunited with Yosef for 17 years now. Why is it just now that he's expressing gratitude that even Yosef is righteous? Right when he was reunited with him 17 years ago, that's when he should have expressed this gratitude. Rabbi Druk, in his Sefer Darash Mordechai, apparently quoting the Mashgiach of Levinstein, explained that Yosef excelled in a characteristic that the Navi, that the prophet extols, v'hatsnea leches im walking privately or secretly with your God. Yosef was an expert at hiding his greatness, at hiding his righteousness. He wasn't kind, he wasn't good, he wasn't moral, so other people would see. It wasn't a show. It was between him and the Almighty, and no one else's business. And he says, it wasn't until all these 17 years had passed, and Yaakov saw Yosef take this oath. And an oath in the Torah is something that's terrifying because it involves using God's name. When he saw the awe that Yosef had and the hesitancy that Yosef had when he took this oath, he said, this one's righteous too. This one has fear of the Almighty in his heart. When there are other people watching, when you're helping someone and it's going to be posted on social media, it's very easy to help someone. Much easier than if no one knows. For 17 years, Yaakov was unable to detect Yosef's true nature. In public, Yosef did not show it. I find this to be so thought-provoking. All those 17 years after Yaakov and all of Yosef's brothers and the whole family, the 70 souls, were now all together in Egypt, Yosef remained a mystery. You would think maybe he'd drop a hint here and there. No, Yosef wasn't doing it for other people. He was doing it for himself. He was doing it for the Almighty. That's all that mattered. And another aspect of this is that Yosef didn't need anyone's approval. He didn't even need his father's approval. He didn't have to show him that he was faithful to his teachings. He had the self-confidence and the self-assurance to act the way he knew was right, even if he left others in the dark. The next thing that happens in the Parsha is that Yosef is told that his father is ill, and he takes his sons that were born to him in Egypt, Menashe and Ephraim, to speak to Yaakov before he passes away. Yaakov becomes nostalgic. He says to Yosef, I never thought I would see your face again, and now I have. He tells Yosef about God's promise to make his descendants a great nation and to give him the land of Canaan. Then he makes a remarkable statement. Your two children that were born in Egypt before I got here, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be to me like my own sons. My grandchildren will be like my own sons, Reuven and Shimon. 
meaning they will each be considered separate tribes, even though it's really Yaakov's children, which are each going to be the tribes of Israel, the tribes of the Jewish people. Yosef's two sons will also be considered tribes, even though they would have been considered only one tribe together, the tribe of Yosef. Instead, it's the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. He then tells Yosef that he wants to bless them. Yaakov was now blind, and we'll talk about in a moment what happened leading up to the blessing. Yosef presents his sons to Yaakov for this blessing with birth priority. Menashe, the firstborn, he presents to Yaakov on Yaakov's right side, so he could put his right hand on the older child, and he puts Ephraim, the younger son, on Yaakov's left side, but Yaakov switches his hands. He puts his right hand on the younger son, Ephraim. He puts his left hand on the older son, Menashe. Yosef says, Yosef then tried to switch his father's hands, and he says, this is not the right order. Yaakov says, no, he's doing this on purpose. Menashe will be great, but Ephraim will be greater. Then he gives them the blessing that we'll get to in a moment. Rav Salvechik on page 351, the bottom page 351, has a beautiful explanation of the significance of this encounter of Yaakov with his grandchildren Ephraim and Manasseh. He points out that even though Yaakov lived a shorter life than his father's than his father Yitzchak and his grandfather Avram, he's called in the Torah and he's called in Midrashim the Zakain, the elder. Rosalvichuk explains that Zakain refers to a special quality that Yaakov had as a grandfather. And that is, in this family, parents taught children, but not grandparents. Avram taught Yitzchak. Yitzchak taught Yaakov. But Yaakov, we don't find that he learned from Avraham. We don't find that the 12 brothers learned from Yitzchak, their grandfather. The Mesorah was passed down father to son, father to son, until Ephraim and Menashe came along. He created a direct relationship with them. He bridged the generation gap. He treated his grandchildren like his own children, like Reuven and Shimon. And he saw the importance for Jewish continuity and building the Jewish people for not only fathers to teach their, to teach their children, but for grandparents to transmit the Mesorah and the tradition of Avraham, not only to their children, but to their grandchildren, directly to their grandchildren. In Rav Salvechik's words, the influence of the grandfathers on their grandchildren, meaning Avraham and Yitzchak, was indirect. Jacob, however, related directly to his grandchildren. He did not need an intermediary or an interpreter. His was a direct dialogue. Jacob the Zuckain, the elder, leapt over the gulf of generations and transmitted the great Mesorah of Abraham directly to Ephraim and Menashe. And not only that, Yaakov first blesses his grandchildren, and only later in the Parsha do we find that he blesses his own children. This is part of the great legacy of Yaakov, our forefather. In Yaakov's blessing to Ephraim and Menashe, he says, Israel. By you shall the Jewish people bless their children. Yisimcha Elohim Kephraim Vichimanasha. God shall make you like Ephraim and Menashe. And he says, The angel which redeemed him from all evil shall bless the children, and they should multiply and become numerous within the land. They should become numerous like fish within the land. Medrash Rabbah makes a beautiful comment on this comparison to fish. He says the Jewish people like fish. Just like fish grow up and live in water. They're surrounded by water 24-7, 365. But when it rains, how do fish react? They want to drink each drop of water. They drink it thirstily, like they've never even tasted water before. 
So the Jewish people are the same. We're surrounded by Torah. We're fortunate to know a lot of Torah, to study a lot of Torah, to be well-educated. But when we hear something new, a new Torah thought, a new Torah insight, we receive it thirstily like we never heard a Torah insight before in our lives. There's a remarkable story about Rav Papa, the 4th century Talmudic sage who lived in Babylonia. When he was studying with the students, he shared with them a halachic question that he had thought of but didn't know the answer to. Until one of his students unexpectedly presented him with evidence that resolved this question. His student's name was Huna Bereder of Nachman. When Rav Papa heard his student's resolution, he jumped up, kissed the student on his head, and said, you're going to be the one who I let marry my daughter. It seems like she was eligible for marriage. He was waiting to see which student was going to be an appropriate match. This student, once Huna, the son of Rav Nachman, came out of left field with this new evidence that Rav Papa never thought of before, his appreciation was boundless. There's a lot of remarkable points about this story, but one of them is this. The topic of Rav Papa's doubt had no practical relevance whatsoever. It was about a Kohen Gadol serving, the high priest serving in the temple, or serving in the Beis HaMikdash. The temple was destroyed a long time ago. There was no work to do in the Beis HaMikdash. There was no Kohen Gadol. So this topic that he was studying was as important as any other non-practical Torah topic, which is very valuable, and we study all parts of the Torah, but it had no practical relevance. But nevertheless, when the student brought this new piece of Torah information to Rapapa, his love and appreciation and fascination with that one new point was enough to totally disrupt his equilibrium and put him into a state of euphoria. In a similar vein, the Talmudic rabbi Shmuel, when he heard that one of his yeshiva colleagues had passed away, that explained one Mishnah to him. He explained one Torah teaching to Shmuel. Shmuel tore his garment because he was so devastated that someone who, someone who he gained a new insight from had passed on. This is especially true about Torah. Its insights can often be so deep and piercing, but it applies in truth to many other areas. Whenever we gain new insight about the world, about being Jewish, about human nature, or about our understanding our own personalities, ourselves. That's a very special thing. It's a special privilege. The more joy we have and satisfaction that we have when we encounter a new insight will motivate us to seek more and more. It doesn't matter how much Torah we know. Just like the fish lives in water, but when it rains, it jumps up to get one drop of fresh water. If we really understand something, if we really appreciate an insight, that one drop will give us great satisfaction. Herman Woke, in his book, The Will to Live On, on page 158, expresses this excitement beautifully when he's explaining his lifelong love affair with studying Gemara and specifically Daf Yomi. In the beginning of this description, he says, Gemara arguments can strike fire from a Jewish head as a safety match does from its folded cover. Strike the match on stone and nothing happens. Strike it on the cover 
and it flames. He then goes into an interesting discussion whether there is such a thing as a Jewish head or not. But here and elsewhere in his writings, Woke describes very vividly his love and appreciation of Torah. And that's what we're talking about here. Wish everyone a fantastic Shabbos, and we look forward to starting Sefer Shemos. We should all really live up to what we say at the conclusion of this book, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazek. We should all be strong, and we should strengthen others, and may we all merit divine assistance to help us with that strength and get through life's challenges and opportunities.